Hey everyone, InventRight co-founder Andrew Krause here. We're going to do a whole hour of Q&A. I see the questions you guys already typed in a bunch of questions and we're only 30 seconds in here. You guys typed them all before we went live here. Um, man, I could probably talk for an hour, just the ones that are already in here. But um, So go ahead. Uh, we, we'll probably need some more. So go ahead and type some more questions um, as you guys uh, jump in. Uh, just a little disclaimer at the top of the hour. Uh, I'm not an attorney, uh, and anything I say today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Um, what I am is a licensing expert. So uh, my co-founder and myself have been uh, coaching and mentoring inventors for the last 22 years, along with our fantastic coaches um, and our negotiation coach, Paul. So we've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, and what we guide people to do is licensing. So what licensing is, is renting or leasing your idea. And I say renting or leasing because if you don't, if they don't perform this big company that manufactures the type of product, let's say it's a kitchen gadget, if they don't perform, you get it back. So you, you never want to sell or assign it to them. So when you're renting or what we call licensing your product to a company, it's their money. It's their workforce and it's their existing distribution. So say that again, you don't need to raise money. This isn't Shark Tank. This isn't a TV show. You don't need to raise money. You don't need to raise venture capital. You don't need to beg for money from your family. That big company, it's their money because that's what they do. They're launching another product. They're used to investing money in the products that they launch. And they're also used to using their employees to launch those products. So you've got sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, that whole machine at that large company you license to is now working on licensing, sorry, working on selling your product. You license it to them or rent at least the product to them. Then you get a royalty on every unit. And, you know, they're a machine. So these, these large companies, you know, they might not all, most of them aren't as creative as you guys, but one thing they're good at is logistics, managing the money, the distribution, all the stuff that most inventors don't really want to deal with. And then the biggest thing is existing distribution. If they're already in 30,000 stores, then you could potentially get your product in 30,000 stores. And they've built up a lot of um, experience and a lot of relationships, sometimes over 5, 10, 20, 30 wow. years, you know? So that's very, very, very important. Um, okay, so let's just go ahead and jump in. Um, and you can read your first name. I'm going to let my dog out here because she wants to go out here. So I'll let her out. Go ahead. There you go. Yep. You got two dogs. One dog was outside wanting to play with the other dog. So I figured I'd let her out. She wanted, it seemed like she wanted to hang out with me, but I guess she wants to hang out with the other dog more. I don't know. Um, okay. So feel free to type in your first name. If not, I'll just read your handle. This person's handle is young, young doll 88. Okay. So these are just, you know, fun YouTube handles. Most of you, when you created your YouTube handle, you probably didn't even think about it. And maybe these are, you know, I never really thought about it, but maybe these are the same as your Google handle too. And that's why it is what it is. Anyway, uh, uh, good afternoon, Andrew. I'm a week into invent help TV. No, we are not invent help. We're invent right. Uh, do not confuse us with that company. Uh, Google the other company. You'll see what I'm talking about. But um, so forgive the answers to these questions over and over. So no, we're Invent Right, um, and we're not an invention promotion company. We we coach and mentor inventors successfully. And if you go to Invent Right and you click on testimonials, you'll see. Um, I was on there. I've been on there in a while. I was just paging down and down and down and down. We've had a lot of uh, students be successful, and we've guided them to do that. And there's a lot more that aren't on there. It got too ridiculous where the page didn't load. And I would hope so after 22 years. You know, we've been doing this for a long time. Um, so Youngdoll88 said, how do I go about an idea of a simple app game? Um, I wouldn't for most of you. I talked to a gentleman. Um, it was last week. It was Wednesday, I think it was. And this gentleman had developed a, a full-on app, Okay. And he was kind of in that business. He really knew what he was doing. And I said, great. There's no difference between you licensing that 
and somebody licensing a kitchen gadget or automotive aftermarket product or a gardening product or any, you, you know, you can license all sorts of things, consumer products, industrial products, business to business product, you, all sorts of different things you can license. But here's the problem. And I've said this before, everybody and their grandmother, including a lot of grandmothers and grandfathers, have an idea for an app, an idea, right? And so um, because people, you know, especially seniors, they have like um, iPads now. They don't know how to work a computer, but they can work their iPad, the basic stuff, right? But then you ask them to, you know, attach a document onto an email on an iPad and they're lost, right? Because some of that stuff's actually more difficult to do on an iPad. Anyway, I'm just rambling now. So um, everybody and their grandmother uses their their iPhone, their their iPad, their Android tablet or phone, and they all have an idea. And so when you have an idea for a physical product, and they say, "Well, how do we do this?" Well, it's I, you know it's just like this product over here, but I just put a hinge over here, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I see that." Okay, and they're good, right? And I'm not saying that's always the case. It's more difficult products too, but. And companies are generally good at that, especially American companies are, are good with that. But when you talk to the software geeks about an app, they're like, oh, God, not another person with an idea, you know, and they're like, they look at it and you don't know what software language you're using or what backend database or any of this stuff. And you don't know the difference between a simple app and a really complicated app. And they're like, well, that's, dude, that's going to take like six guys a year in a room to program, right? There's a lot of work to go into developing an app. I would venture to say for a lot of products, more work than a physical product, right? Um, and so they're very uh, kind of standoffish about it. And then the, the large companies like the Googles and the Apples of the world, you're not licensing to them. Good luck with that. You, know, you can license the really big companies. We had a student, which I think that should be announced any day now, licensed to a very, very large company that's in all the big box retailers. You can license to big companies, but the software big companies, Forget about it. They're, they don't even have a phone you could ever call, and let alone re respond to anything you send. Um, so I really wouldn't recommend apps for most folks. Now, if you're a software developer and you have a background in that, absolutely. You can reach out to smaller and medium and even fairly large, but not the Microsofts and the Apples that work and license stuff to them. Um, but because you can talk their language, that, well, we're going to use this backend database. And this, and this gentleman I talked to had like, semi fully developed the app. It was like 80 to 90% developed. Uh, but you guys don't want to like come up with a game or an app and then spend tons of money trying to develop it just with the goal of licensing it. And then what if they're not interested? The big crux of the InventRight approach is spend very little money, sell the benefit of the product. You're not selling your patent or prototype. Most of our students do a virtual prototype or something they cobble down at the store and then others do something more and that's fine too. But if nobody's interested, you don't want to spend all that money. And the amount of money and development you need to do for an app is craziness, guys. It's like a lot of work. I'm not saying there aren't simple apps. So my suggestion, whenever I have somebody interested in a program or a coaching program and they have an app and they're like, I got a kitchen gadget and I got a gardening product and I got a home storage organization product or whatever. I'm like, let's work on one of those. And I give them my little talk that I just explained about apps. And I go, you're way more likely to license a product. Um, uh, they also said, and that was three questions, so I'm going to move on to somebody else. Can you make an off-brand product of your own product that's cheaper before someone else does it? Is that necessary? No. I mean, when you license your product to a company, they don't want you to knock them off and make the cheaper version. Now, maybe they can make the cheaper version. Maybe they have two versions of it or what have you. But no, you're not going to knock your licensee off and make a cheaper version. I, I see what you're talking about, though. I mean, it's 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 legitimate to go, well, this company is going to sell this version and people are always looking cheaper. A percentage of people are looking cheaper. Could we approach that market? That's something that you need to talk to your potential licensee about the manufacturer to go. And, you know, it's pretty clear if they do super expensive items, they're going to make a really expensive Mercedes-Benz version of it. If they do middle-of-the-road items, that's what they're going to do. If you notice they do really cheap dollar store stuff, that's what they're going to do. And so don't license to a company. Expect them to do something dramatically different quality level. Now, if you notice they have kind of a range, you're going to have that discussion with them. 
on where they think the market is and you're going to go after it. But you and you weren't saying this, but no, you're not going to sell out from under your, your company you license to. Usually you're going to license to one company and that's it. Sometimes you're going to license to multiple. We've talked about that on here before. That can make sense. But if you license to one really big company with great distribution, don't think, well, I got to license to five. Well, then those other they don't have a unique point of difference, right? They don't have a unique product. Like who wants to launch a product and license it from you? And there's four other companies you license to it as well. They don't have a point of difference. Now they're competing with each other in the same shelf at Walmart. It makes no sense. But we do have people that have, oh, it could be this other version over here or another this. As long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, that's fine. But most of the time, one really big, part of my language, big ass company you license to, they blow out in a big way. You should be very happy with that, you know. Uh, 3D House. Hi, Andrew. Should I, should my PPA elaborate or even mention methods of manufacturing or can that be part of it and le a level of detail <coughs> wait until the utility patent? <coughs> I'm reminded of Stephen's spin label. So, yeah, uh, experience discovering where there were multiple patents already filed, but the difference ended up being none of them had solved the manufacturing piece of the puzzle. So, <clears throat> yes, most of the time it's not necessary. And Steven's spin label invention is kind of confusing because it's not a standard consumer product or even an industrial product. It's a packaging product. So he had a label. So let's say this was a container that you put vitamins in. Let's say it's a regular container, not this big water bottle. And so it was a label on top of a label where you could spin the label, the top label and the bottom label would stay still. So it allowed you to include 75% more information for drug facts, for instructions for uh, games, different things like that. So who he was licensing to was the contract packager that would sell these packaging solutions to vitamin suppliers and liquor companies and anybody that had a container, right? And so in that kind of product, the method of manufacturing, the way that this product rolled off the assembly line was critical. And what um, 3D House is talking about is, there was actually, Stephen looked it up, and there was actually a patent done like eons ago that had expired, but they had no method of manufacturing. That's not going to be the case for you guys 95% of the time. I'm not going to say 100%, 95% of the time. But yeah, you know, covering, patenting your invention or pieces of it, because you're not patenting your invention. You know, it's like, you'll go, oh, there's another this or that that's out there. And I'm like, Usually it's it's piece of it. What are you claiming? Like this hinge over here, and it has this feature where there's a strap. You're covering pieces of it. And that no, that's not patent uh, terminologies. A uh, patent attorney would use, but I like to say it this way so you guys understand it. And so if you want to go beyond that, yeah, you can get into the method of manufacturing. Most people, that's very confusing. Sometimes, like we have this student that was working on this toilet paper idea, and um, we found a video on YouTube. This is how toilet paper is made. And we realized by watching that video, there's no way in hell her product could literally ever be made. Now, that's not the case 95, 98% of the time. Most you come up with a new consumer product, a new feature, and it's like, well, you know, I just changed the mold a little bit here because it's going to be a compartment over here. And there's no like big question mark, can we make this? Okay. But in that case, there was. And sometimes there is. And so if you can cover the method of manufacturing in a PPA for those difficult ideas, which is not 95% of the ideas you guys are working on, that can be very powerful. Yeah. And, you know, 3D House's question is like, can I not do that in my PPA? Can I do that later if I get some interest and then I file the full utility patent? The answer is yes. Um, you can definitely do that later. But if manufacturing was an issue or a critical component of this product and you could get actually a patent on the method of manufacturing like the way it comes off the line nobody's figured this out but it's going to stamp here and then it does that <coughs> that can be amazing but i don't want all you guys to think that you need to understand the method of manufacturing for every product you work on because most of our students don't <coughs> most of our students sorry <coughs> a little something in my throat they can look at existing products and go like, let's say these are some readers here. And what, it, you know, there's like a pin. I'm just making stuff up randomly. There's a pin right here, right? 
and you're like, oh, okay, that's how it's made, and you're doing something different. And you, you know, you you know, if it's still a pin going in there, you know, do you need to understand the method of manufacturing? Maybe your pin is different. We actually had a um, it's a good example actually. Nancy Tedeschi is one of our students licensed her product, and she had a product called Snap It Screws. And so what you do when the pin would break and this this part would fall off, right? And then he's got no pin. You could, and people can't, you know, there's all these different little size screws for all different glasses, right? And hers, you just put it in there and then you just snap it off. Great. My glasses are fixed. And she's, she made a lot of money with that, Nancy. She did great with that. Um, did she need to understand manufacturing to know that? Uh, she needed to know how to turn this little screw this tiny little screw <coughs> and then make it with some breakoff points but that's i used to sell cnc machines when i graduated from college for a year or so year or two and um that's still not that's pretty standard stuff so um anyway thank you 3d house for that that question um we better i better pick it up a little bit if i'm going to get to more of these questions uh derek said have you ever had a student too close to their project that they would not accept any criticism from well-meaning people. Um, we don't get it very often with our students because when we do a sales call with somebody interested in the program, we see red flags. Have we done sales calls with people like that? Absolutely. Um, and you know, and they don't end up purchasing, and we don't really try to sell them because you start to notice it, and you're like, why would you want to coach if you don't want? hear what anybody has to say. And I've done sales calls like that. Sylvia and Dana has too. And we just recognize it right away. We, you, we were nice and they go off their way. And, and I've had people that were too arrogant, not open enough, too close to it, too sensitive, what have you. But those aren't the people that sign up with our coaching program. So you're asking specifically if we had any students that way. Um, we've had students that were sensitive. You need to be careful in the way you say it. But we're always honest because there we're not here to <coughs> to make flowers and just give them the flowery outlook and be their yes man. We're here to give them the truth. So we've had some students where you need to be sensitive about it, and you give them, but you we still give them the opinion. And then they, if they choose not to do it, they choose not to do it. But they, at least they've got the good advice. But <coughs> we don't get too many of those folks as students. Um, Everybody, you know, it's close to your heart, you know, it's, you, so you need to be nice, but if there's like, well, you could change this or change that or whatever, um, you need to let people know that, especially about the process, you know, of reaching out to companies if they're doing, um, but you know, a lot of the advice we're giving you is, 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 is also, it's about the process. You know, people will try to quit way too soon. Like we, they'll want to make a list of two or three companies. We're like, nah, we're going to try to make a list of 20 or 30. Um, They'll try to quit before they get a no from everybody. So we don't give up or give in on that. And students aren't sensitive about that. They, they're like, well, I don't like where you're telling me. I think this doesn't make sense now, Andrew. I'm like, well, so you got 15 no's out of 30 companies. You didn't get no's from these rest. rest. We get students all the time that get interest on all of last few companies they have. And they're like, oh, okay, all right. So, but some people can be sensitive about their product, but we always base it on facts. So it's like you need to study the marketplace. You need to look at all the products in this space. Well, this is a fact. That product's like that. That product's like that. Your product fits here. And sometimes the student doesn't see it. So it's the coach's job to say that. And also to re-change, reinvent the product if necessary, you know, to accommodate the marketplace. So it's never the coach's opinion. It's the coach's opinion based on market facts, not their personal, oh, I like this, I don't like that. That's crap. That's not a good invention coach. You know, that's just personal opinion. That's just blowing hot air up somebody's, you know what, you know, so. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there are a lot of inventors out there like that, but I don't think they sign up with us because they know we're going to give them the real deal. Um, Chad said, hey, Andrew, I'm running into some confusion. Some of the companies I'm reaching out to are under the impression that I am looking to do brand licensing and not license a product idea to them. Okay. Uh, what is the best way to clarify that you're looking to license a product concept idea and not brand licensing? I don't find people have that problem very often, Chad. Um, I forgot 
and we can't disclose what your product is. I forget if you told me, because Chad's, I think, now an InventRight student, as I recall. Um, so without looking at your product, I can't answer that question. If I looked at your product and we could publicly share your product, which we're not going to do here, then I can go, oh, I see why they're thinking that. So Chad, I, I believe I'm like 99% sure you're an InventRight student now. Um, drop me an email at Andrew and InventRight and say, you know, just say, chat, hey, Andrew, I'm an InventRight student and here's my product. And people are thinking I'm trying to do brand licensing. And why do you think that is? And I'll look at the product and I'll probably just go, here's why. Here's how we can change that. So if you're sending a sell sheet, whatever, send that to me. Any emails you have, send it off to me. I'll take a look at it. Uh, but without disclosing the product, which we don't want to do here, I, I can't say. And so um, brand licensing, guys, is, uh, you know, there's, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a trade show in Las Vegas every year called the Licensing Expo. You're like, oh, that sounds great, Andrew. The Licensing Expo, I can go license my product there. No, it's not what it is. So it's a brand licensing expo. So if you have Paw Patrol, if you have Disney, if you have... Um, any brand that's well-known, Jeep, you know? And so let's say you're Jeep and you go there and you have a booth, right? So the people that are there are people with well-known brands, okay? Like Mickey Mouse or, or um, Descendants that my daughter watches, some Disney brand or Jeep, the car company. Because have you ever noticed you see Jeep? You, there aren't a lot of products. Like I saw a boombox. I've been seeing them for a while. That's Jeep. You, do you think Jeep made that? No, they didn't make that, guys. So what they do is they go to this trade show and they have a booth and then people walk around and they're not inventors. They're not buyers from retailers. They're manufacturers. They're, they're brands. And so they walk around and they go, oh, whoa, Jeep. Well, we make boom boxes or we make this or that. And they talk to Jeep and Jeep's like, oh, yeah, we'll license you for a 10 percent royalty. It's usually pretty ridiculous. Some of these royalties. Um, and you can sell a boom box with Jeep on it. It's got to meet our style sheet and everything. So basically what the companies are doing, the brands are doing is licensing their, their name or their characters to companies that distribute product and they're getting paid a royalty instead of on the invention on the brand. You know, so for instance, Disney, most of the, all the, most of the Disney stuff isn't made by Disney. It's made by Disney licensees. So think about it. Like you built up this brand, you can just make money licensing the product. Now it's got to meet the style sheet and a certain look and feel. Companies are very picky about that. You can't just do the Jeep logo and draw it in crayon or something. It's got to look just this way um, or something like that. But that, but every inventor, every year I save inventors from going to that show. I'm going to go to the show. And then sometimes I miss some of them. They're like, I went to the show. That's not what I thought it was. <laughs> So that's the licensing expo. So if you guys ever see that, just realize that's not where you want to go. Uh, Brooke said, we are marketing my wife's art, which includes figurines and other super unique pieces. That's cool. Um, how do you protect things like that? Is the most important thing to be the first to market with a licensing deal? So yeah, for, I love first to market. So first to market is the best form of protection. So when you, when you license to a very large company, let's say your figurines or another product, um, they can push it out there hard and fast. If you guys are marketing these figurines now, you could put it on Etsy or eBay or something, and you're like not even on the radar screen, right? And then some other company can knock you off, and now they think you're the me too, and that big company, they think they're the originator. So that's one of the biggest benefits of licensing is licensing to a large company that can be first to market and push it out there in a big way, bigger than you ever could on your own. And, and that's the best form of protection. Everybody else is a me too, right? It's also a better form of protection in a lot of ways than patents too, because, okay, so your guys that are getting it out there in a big way, let's say it's selling really well, selling really well, or quite often will be knockoffs. And your guys are selling 80% of the product and the knockoffs are selling 20%. Well, congratulations, you're successful, okay? So, um, yeah, so I do think, Brooks, is the, one of the best ways to protect your figurines and unique pieces is to license to a big company so that they can push it out there and then the other ones will look like knockoffs, you know? And sometimes we had, um, I forget the exact story. I don't forget, I don't remember if this was uh, one of our students or not, but um, 
we we knew of somebody that that was selling a product and it was knocked off by another company and they got it in i believe it was target and they were really smart so instead of saying target you're you're dealing with a knockoff and getting really pissed we're going to sue them we're going to sue you and stuff they said hey you know we're the originators we're a solid company we get good pricing um do you think you could sell that off and if it's selling well maybe buy your next batch from us you know and it worked beautifully so running around saying you're going to sue people and thinking that a patent is this big club you're going to beat people over the head with um it, it's really not the way it works guys uh, if you want to you can if you want to put yourself in the poorhouse suing people that are infringing your patent but first to market what brooks said is the best form of protection and revenge and yeah, you know, a big company you license to, they're not going to go around suing everybody. Um, they're going to send cease and desist letters. Maybe some of the knockoffs pay attention. Maybe somebody, some of them are like, whatever, you know. Um, but if a cease and desist letter is received from a knockoff company, they're going to pay a lot closer attention to that very large company than you selling on Etsy or some rinky-dink company, right? So licensing to a big company, great, great form of protection. Um, Let's see. Uh, no, yeah, so young, young Dell 88 said, do you need to know all the details that go into creating an idea? For example, if I came up with a nonstick pan, do I need to know all the materials or what's best for their design team? No, I say the vast majority of time, uh, our students will show them a new idea and they figure out the manufacturing. We had one student that worked on... Um, a, uh, a product for um, putting on uh, baby butt cream. And it's just a little sleeve that goes over one finger and you put the cream on there and then you wipe the baby's butt and you throw away the little, like basically it's a one finger glove, right? Her prototype to the company was sewn out of um, some material she found, literally sewn. You could see the stitch marks on the edge. They needed to do some research to figure out exactly what material they're going to use for mass manufacturing and how that would be fused together. And I think on my interview with her, I even talk about that on YouTube. There's an interview up on that. Um, and so, no, you don't need that a lot of the time. Now, sometimes they're lazy and they're going to put it back on you, but at least you've got interest. <clears throat> nice thing is when you have a good marketing piece and you go fishing, right, and you get some interest, Companies will not go, well, you don't have all this figured out. Well, you're just wasting our time. They don't do that. They were interested. And you know you have a fish on the hook if they start asking these questions. Most of the time, you can put it off onto them. A percentage of the time, it might be on you. But you don't need to know all those little details. Now, you don't want to be this inventor. And this is and so not knowing all the materials in a nonstick pan, you know, I mean, it depends on the invention. But you don't want to be this inventor. And I, I give a silly example. I don't know where it came up with this. So if you're an inventor and you're like, well, I say to the company, well, or you make marketing materials. Well, I, I, I've got this new robot that jumps up on your roof and will take all the shingles off and then re-roof your house. So, you know, you don't need to sweat in the sun. I mean, I, I read the other day. I don't know why I saw this. It was like about dehydration, I think, because there were some UPS drivers passing out from the heat or almost dying. I think one died or something. Don't don't quote me on that, UPS. But some, anyway, it's a problem. And roofers, they, they have to drink like two gallons of water in some environments like in Arizona or where I live here in Vegas just to get through the day. That's crazy. So anyway, so let's say you invented a robot that jumps up on the roof and men don't have to shingle the house or women, I guess. And, you know, removes the shingles and puts the shingles. Nobody has to fall off or die of dehydration or whatever. And that's that's the inventors. That's their idea. Right. And then the company says, well, how do we do that? Well, I don't know. I just think it's a good idea. That's wacky inventor territory, right? It's like you should, like the inventor knows nothing about robots and they say, well, you should do this. Okay, don't be that inventor. But if you look at similar products and go, well, I'm just make this change. And I'm not sure what plastic they would use. I'm not even sure about the manufacturing process, but based on the products I see out there, I'm like 70% sure they can do it. Good enough, go for it, okay? So now I'm not saying you might not bump into some issues and they talk about it, but quite often you you can put that off onto them. And then if they keep putting it back to you, maybe you do some research. Now you got some interest, right? You know, so I'm not saying don't do your research, guys, but you can go fishing and be just fairly certain or somewhat certain and not totally certain, but the benefits are intriguing. In the end, that's what's really important. 
Um, Derek said, I also have a friend I told him about licensing an event, right? His dad had a patent that wants, that wants to get it licensed, but now his dad is deceased. Can my friend use that patent? Yeah. So, you know, the, the patent's probably assigned to your dad. You need to talk to an estate attorney about getting that assigned if it's an existing patent over to your friend. Um, if it was covered in the inheritance or the will or whatever, I mean, that's property of the father. And now if that was being passed along, you know, um, you need to you need to look into that. So uh, but if if it maybe it got passed along to the wife and now the wife can pass it along to the son, I think that should be pretty easy to do. I don't have the legal details. I'm not an estate attorney, so I can't say. But if you get permission, can you reassign it um, to yourself? Do you even need to reassign it? Maybe you like, for example, this is just being practical or very practical here at InventRight. Um, maybe you find out it can be reassigned, but you're like, I don't want to go through that hassle in the moment. So yes, the father's deceased, but let's try to license this thing. Now that I know it can be reassigned, then I'll go through it if I get some traction, get some interest, you know. Um, but I think it would make sense to find out if you can do that. I don't see any reason why not. I think yet last week I got that question too, not on here, but I was talking to somebody where that was the case. Um, yeah, I was talking to an InventRight student and her husband had passed and I was helping her out um, with some next steps. Now, fortunately, she was on with her husband on all our coaching calls. Um, but the one thing she wasn't involved in was the filing of the patent. So I was helping her out there. Um, and it looks like she's going to move forward with it, which is pretty cool that she can continue her husband's, you know, dream of, 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 of licensing products on, even though he's passed. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Derek said, that's probably for an attorney. You can't give legal advice. You're still awesome. Thank you, Derek. Um, Roaming Tortoise is a regular. Uh, if a product manager of a company I want to pitch to in the future accepts, in the future, okay, I want to pitch to in the future accepts my connection request on LinkedIn, should I message them thanking them for their connection or would that make me look weird? Um I, you know, uh, me on LinkedIn, when everybody says like when they, when they, I accept them to my connection and say, thank you. I'm like, I don't think it's necessary. It's just creating more uh, noise in your, in your stream. Um, if you accept some, if you ask somebody to be in your network and the way we do it here at InventRight is not to put a custom connection request, just click connect. Okay. And they accept you. I would just let it sit. And when you're ready to reach out now, they're part of your network. Now you reach out to them and ask permission. But I don't think you need to say thank you. I don't think it would make you look awkward. Lots of people do it. But I just find it creates clutter. I don't think they would even think two seconds of it. They just go, oh, another person thanking me for a connection. Moving on. I got tons of emails, tons of projects. I'm super busy. You know, I, I wouldn't think it would make you look awkward. But I don't think it's necessary to thank people once they connect to you on LinkedIn. I think it's kind of a, a waste of time. Reach out to them when you're ready. Okay. Um, making them do anything except when you're ready is, is just a waste of time. Uh, I mean, you can create relationships. Uh, you know, if you, if you're going to do something, I would like, if, if they are, most people aren't, uh, you know, engaging on LinkedIn that much, but if they're making posts and you want to like their post, you want to make a comment on a post they made or something like that, that would be nice. That never hurts. And then they're like, well, I know this guy's name. Oh, yeah, he replied to something I posted. You know, that would that would make sense. Um, Duke said, hi, Andrew, does a company own your product if you license it to them without a patent or a PPA? It, it means it, the patent or PPA means nothing with regards to them owning your product. We would never let them own your product. And I'll explain that in a minute. As an inventor, should I make my PPA for every product that I will license? Okay, that's the second part. So the first, what he's saying is, does a company own the product if they license it to them? No, the whole deal with licensing, if you do a smart licensing agreement, I've talked to inventors outside InventRight and they tell me what they sign and I'm like, oh, the company's doing nothing with it. I'm like, how's that possible? What are the minimum guarantees? What are the performance clauses? And they're like, what are those? And I'm like, did you sign the contract they sent to you first? And it's, the company's not trying to screw them. I'm not saying that at all. That's what some of you might be thinking. And they're like, yeah. 
And, and I'm like, why do you do that? Like, we've never had a single one of our students in the deal where we didn't need to modify the contract. And quite often, fairly significantly. Just the right stuff's not going to be in there. Um, so what a licensing agreement is, is gives them the right. Doesn't matter if you have patents or not. It depends on what's in the agreement. You could do it with patents or without patents, depending on what's in the contract. But you're giving them the right to rent or lease your product. And they have to perform. And you might have very minimal performance guarantees. But if they don't perform, you're taking it back. So you're never selling it to them. You're not assigning them the patent and you're not selling them your invention. You never want to say, I want to sell you my patent. I want to sell you my invention. That shows you don't know what the hell you're doing. Never say that. I want to license it to you. And is there a marketing manager or two out there? It's like, I don't know what licensing is. Yeah. I had a student just last week. They're like, they don't know what licensing is. I'm like, oh, it's going to be a little painful. We're going to explain it to them. Then they think about, oh, we couldn't do that. Well, because this and this. And they're like, well, okay, I guess that makes sense. And so there are some very good companies that are worth licensing to and worth the pain of explaining licensing to. Um, and so what if they haven't done a licensing deal before? You're going you're gonna to go through the pain of explaining it to them. So when you do a, a, a licensing agreement, some licensing agreements, you know, the, the, it, it's not dependent on the patent at all. And they're, what they're agreeing to is pay you regardless of a provisional patent or a patent. And you can write that. You can write that up in the licensing agreement. So they have to pay you regardless. And other agreements will be dependent on the patent. Well, if we don't get the patent or it's dependent on the patent, they make it dependent on the patent. Um, but even then, it's not theirs. They are renting the product and or patent through the licensing agreement. That's the best way to say it. That's the way all you guys can understand it now is they are renting the product and or the patent, sometimes just the product, sometimes the patent and the product um, through the licensing agreement. Renting, okay? You're not selling. Don't use the word sell, okay? <clears throat> okay, so the second part of Duke's question, and as an inventor, should I make the PPA for every product that I will license? At the beginning, I definitely would. And generally, the advice that we give our students and the public is to always file a PPA. It gives you kind of the warm and fuzzies that you have that stakeholder in the hand and know a PPA is a provisional patent application. It's not a patent. If you later file a utility and reference that provisional, you'll have protection from that date. And that's why attorneys get really upset when people call it the anal ones, which they're right. They call it a provisional patent. It's not a patent. It's a provisional patent application. Okay. Um, but for $75, you know, unless you're being really, really prolific with your ideas, working on a lot of ideas, it, I think it's totally worth it. Now, I think I could think of some scenarios and I'm not telling you guys do this officially. We tell our students in the public, always file a provisional patent application before you send it to anybody or show it to anybody. Um, except for vendors that you get an NDA to sign like a graphic designer or engineer or prototyper or something. <clears throat> um, but you, 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 you don't, you don't, you, if somebody had a novelty product, so let's say you're working with this company, you show them a novelty product. Let's say you file a provisional on it. They're like, Oh, you know, um, Duke, we're really, really impressed with what you're doing here. Can you find us something in this area and this area? And you come back as novelties, like you can make a sketch. It's really primitive. It's really basic. And they're just like, do we like this concept or not? And you want to show them five concepts because you know this company now. And you're like, here's five concepts. They're like, oh, we like this one. So in that case, would it make sense to file five provisionals? So you're just working with this one company. And you know, if they're not interested, you're going to show it to more companies. Um, you know, that might be a case in which you might choose not to do it. But officially, we always tell people to file PPAs when they're new to it. But you come extremely prolific in environments where you have to be hyper creative and show a lot of ideas, you know, it might make sense to forego that. That's not the advice I'm providing you, but it might make sense to forego that. Um, but at the beginning, I just file it, you know, $75 if you're a micro entity. Um, so in micro, there's a spreadsheet you can do on the patent office site to determine if you're a micro entity or not. I think it was 150 annual household or 150,000 or under 200,000. Don't quote me on that. I haven't actually done the spreadsheet before. Um, and then if you're not a micro entity and you're doing really well financially, it's 150, you know. Um, but I've seen a lot of people that 
are not micro entities still file as a micro entity pay the 75 have i ever seen that bit anybody bite anybody in the butt no am i advising you to do that no um but you know so for most of you it's 75 bucks um so i, I would recommend doing it in certain industries you get hyper creative really know a company really feel comfortable with them could you forego it yeah um you're probably not there duke right now maybe you are um so um <clears throat> brandon says how grandiose can benefit statements be on a sell sheet? Hmm. Got to be careful about that. Is it advisable to make the claim that the product will replace all competing products when in fact it only replaces 90%? Yes. Or other embellishments. You guys need to be very, very careful about it. You never want to say there's nothing like it. You never want to say if we only get 2% of the market. You never want to say these things that when marketing managers see it, they're like, ah, oh, rookie inventor. Okay. I don't care if it's true. You still don't want to say it. And, pro and most of the time it's not true because I can prove most inventors wrong. There's nothing like it. I'm like, yeah, there is. I know you showed me the product. What about this over there? But that's not exactly like, I'm like I didn't say exactly something kind of like it, you know? Um, and so you don't want to say there's nothing like it and you don't want to get too grandiose with your benefit statement. I mean, I think this is the, I've never really answered this way before, but if the marketing is too over the top, for anybody that's a reasonable marketer, then you shouldn't be doing it. Like if, if and you know, the infomercial DRTV companies, they're famous for doing over the top marketing and stuff. But most of these standard consumer product companies you're gonna be marketing to, if you look at their marketing and your marketing is out of line because it's so grandiose that it doesn't meet up with their marketing, that's not smart on your part. So you want a benefit statement. That is the big benefit, maybe the bullet points of some sub benefits, see the picture. Oh, I get what this product does. But making these massive statements like of, it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's, I don't know how to put it. It's kind of immature. It's kind of, it's grandiose. It's not immature. It's, it's grandiose. And it sounds grandiose. And now you sound like a sleazy marketer, right? Instead of a, a, a level-headed marketer. If the industry you're in is everybody's doing that, maybe, but most industries are not like that. So don't make huge grandiose statements. Um, they can be impactful and they should, you know, and some are more than others. And we, you know, unless we have some examples here, we can't go into that. But the one, what we're talking about guys is the one sentence benefit statement. So on your one page marketing piece, you got a big one sentence benefit statement, a few bullet points with sub benefits, maybe some features, picture your product, contact info at the bottom. They look at the picture well, they look at the benefit statement, the picture, go, oh, I get this. You know, it helps me chop carrots in half the time. OK, so if, if it does help you chop carrots in half the time, is that too grandiose? No, I don't think so. Or it makes uh, kitchen cleanup easier. That's not grandiose. But when you when you when you're making fight claims, which is what Brandon is saying here, product replaces all competing products. If it, in fact, only replaces 90%, saying it replaces other products, it's now you're like trying to prove that everything sucks and yours is better. Why not just prove that with good marketing? That's going to be the natural conclusion that they come to. If it helps you chop vegetables in half the time or makes kitchen cleanup so much easier, you know, those are great benefits. You don't, and you know, and, and sometimes when you have, you know, the infomercial guys, they'll do things. It makes all these products irrelevant. They push it off the, the, the kitchen countertop and you just need this now. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. So that can make sense. I can't really say, but I generally, I avoid that brand. And I rambled on that for a while, but hopefully you guys find that helpful. Um, Margie said, uh, hi, Andrew, if we're sending only a video to companies without a sell sheet, yes, a lot of our students do that too. Should we include info in our email, which would normally be in the sell sheet? Well, it would probably be in the, the video, um, if, unless there's small details. Because one nice thing about a video is you can move from screen to screen pretty quickly and include more information than you could cram into a sell sheet. Now, am I saying you should? No. Um, it, you should include the critical stuff, the stuff where you're going fishing, see if you're going to get interest. It should always be focused on that. When you throw everything in the kitchen sink in there, that's not good. And that's especially true of emails. Nobody wants a long rambling email. But Margie, could there be things that aren't in the video that you could include in your email? But yes, absolutely. But if you're including these little minute 
less important things in the email and they're just reading the email, but they're getting the main thing in the video. Um, I, I kind of wonder like, do you need to include it in the email? And this is a very hard thing for inventors to do to not include all the information. If you hold back, not holding back on what the product is or its benefit, but sometimes you hold back on some of these details, you're better off. And they're just intrigued by the, the big benefits of the product, you know, including all these little details. Oh, we can make it pink. Or we can make it fuzzy or we can make it sharp. And you don't need all that stuff in your in your video sell sheet or your sell sheet or the email. So I think the big question, Margie, is, yes, you can include information that's not in the video. Um, sometimes I, I like to it's expanding on the video. Watch the video. And then these are some important a few important notes um, after you've watched the video. Right. You can say guide them towards the video. So, yes, but don't include everything in the kitchen sink in the email. Include very little in the email and don't do that in the sell sheet and don't do that in the video either. But I've, I've seen cases where you can include a few extra things. Boom, boom, boom in the video where I'd be like, that's too much for the sell sheet. Right. Now, that doesn't mean all you guys should go to a video. Oh, I can include more. Andrew said I can put more in it. Well, don't include more for the sake of including more. Include more for the things that are going to get them to, to, to call you back. We always say call, but another little tip, guys, 95% of the time they're going to email. They're not going to call, um, but they do call. But anyway, uh, inquiry back, whatever the hell you want to call that. So I think it's a great question, Margie. Um, Richard said, I was taking photos of my prototype. Uh with my cell phone to look up on image search and discovered somehow my photos have ended up on Facebook. Can that harm your PPA? What the hell? I was taking photos of my prototype on my cell phone um, to look up on an image search. Okay. And I discovered that somehow my photo, why they end up on Facebook? You should see where your face, like, you know, um, your pictures on your phone that you take should not automatically be uploaded to Facebook. I don't know, did you automatically set your photo reel to get up on Facebook? Um, I think people are nuts with the stuff that they post on Facebook. Um, I, why aren't we being more careful about the shit we post on Facebook? It blows my mind the things that people share on Facebook. Um, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't mind being public and helping you guys here, but I, I don't like, you know, you know, private, pictures of my daughter, but you won't find crap on my Facebook. Um, I don't even go on there. I go on there once every three months because obviously I'm not a Facebook fan. If you use it right, I think it could be great. You know, you just have a small circle of friends and they're not being weird and, and they're not making, but it's hard to control that sometimes. But anyway, I have no idea. So let's get back. I don't know how the hell that happened to you, Richard. Shouldn't be have random photos that you take on your phone, should stay on your phone getting uploaded to Facebook. Maybe your wife or your, you uploaded it and you didn't know it. I don't know. Um, but can that harm your PPA? Yes, it could. It doesn't harm your PPA because the patent office didn't even look at a PPA. Could it harm? The only scenario in which it could become a problem, um, well, could harm your PPA because it's public disclosure. So, But nobody's calling you out on any of this unless a bunch of money is being made, Okay. You know, if, if millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars are being made, could they pay somebody to search, find that you made a public disclosure prior to filing your PPA, and then you didn't file a full utility, and they could go, well, that's that's that was out there in the market, that was out there being publicly disclosed, and therefore his patent's invalid. Yeah, you know, if it was within a year, you know. Um, have I ever seen that happen? No. Um, could it? Could but it's fairly unlikely. So I would not remotely let it hold you back from working on licensing your product um, and figure out why your personal photos are getting uploaded without your knowledge to Facebook. That's just freaking bizarre. Um, uh, but you know, if you made public disclosure, it's the it's called the one year on bar rule. Um, that's one way they put it. There's other and um, and public disclosure patents, public disclosure, one year on bar rule. You can Google that and learn more about it. Um, but, you know, even then, when you disclose something, if you didn't disclose like the inner workings of it, sometimes you just see it and you know what that product is. 
that's not public disclosure of the inner workings, right? And so, um, or you're like, oh, I got a new version, like, and this new version is going to be better. Well, if that hasn't been publicly disclosed, not only can you get a patent on that new version, but um, it's going to be a better product anyway. So uh, Dave said, should we have companies sign an NDA before we send over a sell sheet? Well, I'm not an attorney, so I can't provide you legal advice, but I can tell you, you're going to have a, a bloody red forehead from beating your head up against a brick wall if you expect all the companies you try to license to to sign an NDA. Um, we get this, this question nonstop and uh, attorneys will tell you to do that, but ask your patent attorney how many products they've licensed. They haven't licensed anything. They have no idea what the practical nature of licensing is. Um, file a provisional patent. That's what our students do before they reach out publicly. Okay. Um, and I'll give you my short version. I got to come up with a super short version or just put a link in the chat because we get this question so often. It's a great question, Dave. And it's, it's good that people ask it because a lot of you are going to hurt yourself if you expect all these companies to sign an NDA. So if they ask, say, yeah, sure, I'll sign it. Don't sign it till you read it. But it was their NDA that their attorney wrote, and it's the same one that's always sent if they ask you to sign it. To me, personally, I would never ask it to say, hey, do you have an NDA you want me to sign? I would be like, hey, here's my product. And you, it says patent pending on it because you filed a provisional patent, right? But they're quite often okay with you signing theirs if they have one. A lot of times they don't. And why would you make a big deal about it? Because it's going to protect them more than it does you anyway. But if they insist on it, say, oh, of course, and then get it, read through it, make sure it doesn't have something messed up in there. Messed up things I've seen over the years are, uh, we'll, we'll, we owe you a maximum of $5,000 if we decide to move forward this project and we can move forward with it or, or um, we don't have to pay you anything for it or just messed up different stuff or, you know, it's, no, I don't see it often or we own whatever you send. I've seen that. That was kind of crazy. Um, I could mention a few companies where, so read it. Don't just sign it. You say you're going to sign it, but then look through it. And now sometimes people read these ones from companies and they go, oh, this is terrible. I'm like, no, that's really normal. That's normal. So some of the things that you guys may think is really bad is like perfectly fine. Like they won't keep it confidential. A lot of times they're a non-confidentiality agreement. Well, you filed your provisional patent application. They're not going to run out there and show your invention to everybody. They just want to be able to show it to people in the company or maybe a, a, a vendor going, hey, can we make this? You know, um, so that's them sending theirs, but their attorney looked at it. They're always sending the same one. They don't need to look at it every time an inventor signs an NDA. But just imagine they get 200 ideas a month and every inventor has their own NDA. Oh my God, now they need a full-time legal guy just to re review to make sure you didn't say you own their company by them signing this. It's not practical, guys. But after they show interest, you're like, well, after that's too late, Andrew. Well, you filed your freaking PPA. You want to send it. They want you to send a prototype or some CAD drawings or some other details. A lot of products are really simple. really easy to understand right up front, but more details. Now, maybe you're, I'm just making up numbers, guys. These aren't real numbers. But let's say it's the two inventors that month out of 200 that they are interested in the product. Now, maybe it's a little more practical to ask them to sign NDA at the right point in time. I really wouldn't even do it that soon. So we're not saying never do an NDA, but if you feel, if you think, or your attorney told you or whatever, that I have to have every single company I send sign my NDA, there'll be like some, I've had, I've talked to inventors with this is the case, like they were all interested. And then I'm like, Hey, can you sign my NDA? They're like, yeah, okay. And then they just disappeared because now they got to get permission from legal. You're putting all this work on them rather than spending you know, one minute looking at your sell sheet. Now you get, now you gave them a chore to do. So that's the practical nature of it. I, some, someday I have to, I, I'm going to come up with like a one minute version of that ramble and go into even some details I didn't cover right now. And then just all, every, somebody asks that I'll just send the link. And then all you guys listening can just click on it, watch it when you're ready. And, you know, uh, cause I'm so tired of giving that answer, but it's really important. You know, so Dave asked a really good question, um, but you do something for 22 years, you get tired of some questions because you, you see, I had to get all wrapped up in it to answer it. And um, it's just not a fun question to answer. Um, uh, Hill Dog said, hey, Andrew, we're making a spreadsheet of patents during the 10 steps. 
we'll typically guide people to do that. Do you list your competitive patents that are expired or abandoned? Okay. Well, I, first of all, I think uh, uh, market search is 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 a hundred times more important than a patent search. So you never the first thing you do is never a, a patent search. It's always a market search. Later, do a patent search. But Hill Dog is their name um, or their handle. Um, you know, you do a pat patent search is a good thing to do too. Absolutely, I'm not saying don't do a patent search. And to do a, throw it into a spreadsheet, absolutely. You know, you put the patent number, then you put the link to that page on the patent office or Google Patents where it links to it if you need to jump back to it. I think that's a smart thing to do. Um, it's very rare, guys, that our students find prior patents that are an issue. It's very rare. Uh, most of the time you can work around what's out there. People are like, oh, I, I say this all the time too. Let people can work around me? I'm like, yeah, you know why? Because the attorney and the patent attorney did a piss poor job of thinking about all the variations, workarounds, improvements. Our students do a kick-ass job of that because we force them to do it. But the attorney, the patent, the inventor doesn't even think about it normally. That's not an invent rights student. And the attorney doesn't want to push them to do it because they're like, because inventors are like, well, you're the patent attorney. You file a patent now. Bad attitude. And then the patent attorney is like, ooh, I, I don't really want to give them a bunch of work to do and rethink this thing and think about the variations because I just, I need to get their 10 grand. I need to file this. Now, this is not a good inventor and not a good patent attorney, but there's too many of them out there. So the reason why I say most of these patents are weak to junk and you can work around them is because of what I just explained. You're not thinking about the variations, workarounds, improvements. So don't think like, well, then people just work around me easy. No, they can't. Not if you thought about it. And so that that is like the best piece of patent advice you'll ever get in your entire life. And, and not enough patent attorneys are doing it. Not enough people are talking about it. And it's very, very simple advice. And the problem is when an inventor has been thinking about an idea for a long time, and if they study the marketplace, they're like, this is the version. Great. That's the version. Based on the marketplace, this is the best version. But now it's hard for the inventor that's been thinking about an idea for a year or two or more. Um, what are the variations? Well, there's no variations. This is the best. This is the best. Well, you need to come up with that version. It's 75% is good. 90% is good. Just as good, but not the version you're pitching. Throw all that into a provisional. It doesn't cost you a cent more. And you're creative already. You're an inventor. It's freaking easy to do. But it's hard for people to do when they become fixed in their mind as to what this thing is. So now you need to get out of that mindset. Go, how could I knock myself off? Right? And so that's very, very important. So let's get back to Hill Dog's original question. When you're making a spreadsheet of patents during the 10 steps, do you still list competitive patents that are expired or abandoned? So I think it's great you're making a list. That's great. Even though with everything I said, it's great you're making a list. Um, expired or abandoned? Absolutely you should. Because anything that's expired or abandoned is public domain. Anybody can do that. So you should be aware of that. Right? So if a patent is expired and it has A and B in it, anybody can do that. But then you add C. Well, nobody can do C because you add this hinge over here and it does this and this doesn't have it. Now, other people can go do this old version that's expired and you could have 20 people doing that, but it's not going to have that hinge that you protected with your PPA and your pen. So I think it's I think you should keep that hill dog in your um, spreadsheet of the prior patents that are expired and abandoned, too, um, because they're all public domain. Anybody can do anything that's in there. You know, um, after that, and you go and you want to look and go, do I have a point of difference from those? Very relevant. It's a good question. It's not often that I get questions that I haven't gotten before, but that is one of them. I thought that was a really good question. These were all good questions, by the way, even though I'm kind of joking and saying, oh, you know, I've been getting these, these same question for 20 years. But but also. It doesn't matter that I get tired of giving the answer. You guys need to hear it. And I'm always willing to do the work to give you a, a new inventor an answer that, that they need, you know, to get in the right mindset, um, such as the NDA one. Uh, Tony said, uh, hi, Andrew. I heard you and Steve mention about term sheets now and then. I know they precede contract negotiations, correct? They're before contract negotiations. But could you please talk about what they are for and what goes into them? So I was helping uh, one of my students just uh, just last week with this. Um, you know, normally it's our negotiation coach, but they happen to get on with me and I was helping them through it. Um, and I said, you know, I think a term sheet would make sense. 
because what the company was saying, oh, send me your contract. I'm like, no, we usually want them to send their contract. So term sheets are basically, they're non-legal contracts and they're just some bullet points. Like here's the minimum guarantees. It'd be this royalty. It'd be this and this, you know, it's a great way to introduce, especially to companies that haven't licensed a lot or not at all basic terms. And if they have licenses, like here are the basic terms, but you should never just send a term sheet. You need to know how to interview them, collect the data and then send the term sheet. You never like never do this guys like well i heard andrew and steven say five percent royalty is common and so you get on a call with somebody that shows interest they're like what are you looking for oh i don't know five percent like don't don't do that like i've had people that they come back and they're like well you know we we, we did an eight percent deal last year so we want to do that and i've had students like oh my god i'm so glad i didn't say that andrew because now they want to give me eight percent royalty okay so um but you need to interview them. And then at the right time, you might send a term sheet saying, here's kind of a summary of the basic points. And they're talking points for back and forth. It's not a contract. It's just, it's just an email. I mean, you could put it in a, in a Word document and send that if you want, or you could put it in the actual email. Here's what, here's what I think might work. And that's a great thing to do because then it's, it's, it's discussions. And it's like, oh, no. Like a, a, a fair amount of the time, Companies will say, oh, no, we can't do minimum guarantees. Well, I can tell you guys, we will not let a student do a deal without a minimum guarantee or some sort of equivalent. OK, so then we teach the student to go back to the company and say this or that. And, you know, well, this is only like, for example, this is only like one tenth of what you said you could sell. And if you're not selling this volume with this minimum guarantee, you wouldn't even want to keep the product. They can't argue this stuff. So we've got all these like clever comebacks for um, doing these deals. And then the, the same company that was arguing, no, they're like, well, okay. Yeah. They can't argue it, you know, and they may argue about something else and you'll give it on something else, but a minimum guarantee or, or um, equivalent, there's equivalencies. You don't have time to get into that um, are non-negotiable. So don't freak out if companies will argue about things and they sit and think about it and you frame it a certain way. And they're like, Oh, okay. You know, that's really common. Um, I think people that just, that's thats what the word negotiation is. And you try to keep it really warm and fuzzy. With our students, they have our negotiation coach, Paul, and, you know, he's behind the scenes. And the company's like, you don't have an attorney involved. That's fantastic. Our other co-founder, he likes to say, I never really put it this way before, he likes to say this, they underestimate you. And, and then, but they're getting great, you're getting great advice. And most of the time, I don't think they underestimate you. I think when you say all these smart things, they're like, wait a minute, this guy knows what he's talking about. So there's a lot of back and forth. That's what a negotiation is. You don't need to get mad or pissed off or assume they're trying to screw you. Um, you know, I mean, as students, like quite often when they get their first, the contract back, the first contract, Paul will go over it, our, our negotiation attorney. And he'll say, okay, well, you change this and this and this. And there's these five things missing. Yeah, it's common. And they're like, oh, they're trying to screw me. No, this is pretty normal. This is just the back and forth. They won't typically include stuff that's important. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. doesn't really matter. Um, we get licensing contracts that aren't remotely licensing contracts. But Paul will be like, this is fine. Paul's our negotiation coach. Great. They got to the point where they wanted to send you a contract. We're doing fantastic. You know, so we're going to stuff it with all these important licensing clauses and terms, and then they're going to agree on some things, not on others. But sometimes their general counsel that doesn't know their ass from a hole in the ground with regards to licensing is writing this contract. But they took the time to get their attorney to write that and send it off. Great. And there's been a bunch of steps before that. They don't just do that right away. That's a good thing. That's fine. We don't care. It's a giant mess. We'll fix it. You know, that's our attitude. Whereas licensing attorneys, they get really abrasive. And before you know it, they killed the deal and they still send you a three, $4,000 bill. You can easily get a bill from one licensing attorney on one deal for the entire cost we charge for half a year of one-on-one -on -one help with a sell sheet, virtual prototype and, and every, everything else and weekly help and email anytime. Um, now, so the way we work, it is when you're with us, Paul will help you get to 95% done. And then you only have a licensing attorney dot the I's, licensing attorney dot the I's and cross the T's when a deal is 95% done. Um, 
And that's very affordable. If, if you, we know some attorneys that will do that because they know us, they think what we're doing is cool. Because not all attorneys are bad people. Um, there's a lot of good attorneys out there too, but they just don't know how to do the licensing negotiation, you know? Um, so we, we came up upon the, the hour. I want to remind you guys to go to inventright.com and click on a free resource. If you go to inventright.com, R-I-G-H-T.com, and upper right-hand corner is a free resources tab. Um, we put new stuff up there all the time, so check that out. Um, if you're not subscribed to our webinar series, you might check that out as well. Um, we just did one last Thursday, and then we put up the recording up there for our 10 steps, so you might subscribe to that as well. And if you guys are interested, um, you can click on the contact us button. You can book an appointment with uh, Dana or Sylvia. They're super friendly. And they're the ones that do, we call them advisors, but they do sales, but they're super friendly. Nobody will ever be push you into anything at InventRight. We're, we're really chill. Um, so you could talk to them. You might not be like ready to sign up yet, or you're just curious and you just want to talk to them. You're not going to feel uncomfortable on that call with either of them ever. Um, and if you ever did, you call me, but I would be shocked. Um, so feel free to, to, to put the feelers out there. Um, and I'll catch up with you guys next Monday. All right. All right. See you guys. Bye.